Chapter number 19 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. Brian Johnson from Kent, Ohio. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Keeble Chatterton. Chapter 19. The Last of the Algerine Corsairs. And now let us take a final look at that pestilential spot, Algiers. We have seen how that during the 16th and 17th centuries it had been constantly attacked and conquered, but before long, the Algerines had again broken out into piracy. So soon as their invaders withdrew their forces, the corsairs rebuilt their walls, fitted out their new craft, and went roving the seas and harassing innocent ships. They had pillaged the coastline of the French Riviera, burning and killing and destroying in their ruthless manner. And then the French had been compelled to send Admiral Duquesne against them, who had bombarded the palace for a time, until bad weather caused him to withdraw his ships from Algiers. The pirate trouble had therefore begun afresh, and the day had sent to Louis the impudent message that if the French monarch would give him half the money the last French expedition had cost, the day would be pleased to burn down his city. So once more, Duquesne had been sent out, who had bombarded Algiers and caused wholesale destruction. Then he had consented to cease firing and discuss terms, but in the meantime the Dey had been assassinated by his own followers, who now elected a new one and ordered the Algerine flag to be rehoisted on their walls. With greater fervor, hostilities were now resumed, and in a few days the place was reduced to ashes, and large numbers of the Algerines had perished. This so infuriated the new day that he ordered all the French captives to be cruelly murdered, and with great brutality caused Father Vacher to be bound hand and foot, tied to a mortar, and fired off like a bomb against the French fleet outside. Duquesne had then brought his ships as near in as possible, destroyed all their shipping, fortifications, and buildings, and, having done all that he could, sailed away, leaving the Algerins plenty of subjects for meditation. And yet, it was not long before these pirates had regained their good spirits and were again engaged in piracy. Was it not their profession and calling? Was it not by such methods that they kept themselves alive? They knew perfectly well that they were rogues, but as other men were traitors, so they were pirates. Therefore, diplomatic measures being so obviously impotent, the only way to treat with them was to keep on sending expedition after expedition. In 1700, Captain Beach attacked seven of their craft, drove them on shore, and burnt them. Less than a hundred years later, ten American ships had been seized by these corsairs, and 150 men from their crews taken into captivity. In order to obtain these men back, the Americans had to pay a heavy ransom and build the day a 36-gun frigate, but thereby they also received protection for the American ships and the right of free trade with Algiers. At an earlier stage of this book, I have had occasion in discussing the Muslim Corsairs to refer to the port of Bona, a little to the east of Algiers. In the year 1816, there was an establishment here for carrying on the coral fishery under the protection of the British flag. Hither came a number of Corsican, Neapolitan, and other Italian fishercraft. Ascension Day in that year fell on the 23rd of May, and as the fishermen were about to attend Mass, there was a gun fired from the castle, and simultaneously 
there rushed into sight 2,000 infantry and cavalry, consisting of Moors, Turks, and Levanters. Fire was opened on the poor fishermen, and practically the whole lot were massacred. The English flags were then torn to pieces and trampled on. The British vice consul's house was pillaged, as well as the supplies of coral, which had been obtained by the fishermen. As soon as news of this incident reached England, the country was roused to immediate action, and a punitive expedition was got together and sent out under Admiral Lord Exmouth. He had been delayed by headwinds, but got underway in the last week of July. His flagship was the 120-gun Queen Charlotte, Rear Admiral Sir David Milne being second in command in the 90-gun Impregnable. There were also three 74-gun ships in addition to a number of frigates, brigs, bombs, fireships, and several smaller ships well supplied with shrapnel and the ordinary means of warfare of those times. By the 9th of August, the fleet had arrived and anchored at Gibraltar, where it was joined by the Dutch fleet of five frigates and a corvette under Admiral Van Capelen. Meanwhile, HMS Prometheus had been dispatched ahead to Algiers to bring away the British consul and his family, but did not succeed in the entire task. By disguising them in the midshipman's uniform, the consul's wife and daughter were able to escape, but the consul had been seized by the day and thrown into chains. For the Algerine had learnt from French papers of the forthcoming British expedition, and having heard of the escape of Mrs. and Miss Macdonald, he immediately ordered the detention of two of the boats from the Prometheus, which chanced to be ashore. The crews were thrown into slavery, but when this information reached the ears of Lord Exmouth, this, if anything were wanting, completed his eagerness to wipe out the plague spot of European civilization. So, the fleet left Gibraltar and arrived before Algiers on 27th August. An interpreter was sent ashore with Lieutenant Burgess, the Admiral's flag lieutenant, under a flag of truce, with a letter to the day demanding reparation. And while this was being done, the fleet, taking advantage of a light breeze springing up, came into the bay and hove to about a mile from Algiers. But after waiting beyond the stipulated time, since no answer was forthcoming, Mr. Burgess and the interpreter returned to the flagship, where everyone was ready and anxious for the order to blaze away at the enemy. The Admiral now made a signal to know whether all the ships were prepared, and the affirmative answer being returned, the Queen Charlotte led the line towards the shore, and to the amazement of the enemy, ran across all the batteries without firing or receiving a single shot. She then brought up within 80 yards of that mole which the reader will recollect had been built long years before by Christian captives. The spot selected by the admirals where an Algerine brig was seen lying. The rest of the fleet, including the Dutch vessels, then took up their assigned positions in regular order. The position of the Queen Charlotte had been selected with great foresight, for here she was exposed to only three or four flanking guns, while her own broadside swept the whole of the enemy's batteries. But so far, not a shot had been fired, and the shore batteries were lined with spectators who gazed in astonishment at the quiet order with which the ships had each come to her berth, in such close proximity to the defensive works. For a time, Lord Exmouth was in hopes that the day would yield to his lordship's demands, but this delay was not caused by any such intention on the part of the enemy but owing to the fact that the Algerines were completely unprepared for such a sudden approach, and their guns were not even shotted. It was only as the fleet came to anchor that the gunners ashore could be seen getting busy. To the last minute, 
the British Admiral was minded to spare human life, and even was seen on the quarterdeck repeatedly waving his hat as a warning to the crowd to retire from the mole. So at 2.45pm, the enemy opened fire at the Queen Charlotte, before the sound of firing reached his ears, and while the first smoke was visible, Lord Exmouth gave the order to fire. And then, three broadsides were fired in about six minutes, the rest of the fleet following the example. This caused terrible devastation ashore, as many as 500 people being killed or wounded. Then the attack began in deadly earnest. It was a repetition of the history of the 16th century. On the one hand, the Christian forces of Europe. On the other, the infidel corsairs and enemies of the human race. Both sides fought with the same fierceness which had marked their contests in many a previous generation. In the hot, overpowering sun, with the last vestige of breeze vanished away, the gunners had blazed away in fine style. Algerian vessels in close proximity to the English fleet burst forth into flames, and for a time, endangered the wooden walls of England. On both sides, frightful slaughter was taking place. The day had 500 guns mounted and doing their work to our great loss, but our own men and guns were hurling death into the nest of pirates in a manner that surprised the Algerians. There was in the breasts of the invaders not merely the hatred of the Algerians as infidels and pirates, but the fact that these men had been responsible for the capture of so many Christian ships and the cruelties to so many European seamen sufficed to increase the determination and enthusiasm with which the destruction was being dealt out to these poisonous wasps. But if the enemy was clearly suffering heavy losses, the attackers were not without heavy casualties. About sunset, Rear Admiral Milne made a signal to Lord Exmouth, announcing the losses on the impregnable alone as 150 killed and wounded, and requesting that if possible, a frigate might be sent to take off some of the enemy's fire. The Glasgow was therefore ordered to go, and actually got up her anchor, but the wind was so scant that she was obliged again to let go, though in a rather more favorable position. But meanwhile, on shore, flames were bursting out and making an end to matters. One of the enemy's frigates had been gallantly boarded and set on fire, but now all the Algerian ships in the port were in flames, and thence the fire spread with all devouring force to the arsenal and storehouse causing a marvelous sight against the background of darkness. Our shells had been splendidly aimed, and although in some cases they had to be fired right across our own men of war, yet never an accident occurred to our ships as they went to find their billet in the home of the Algerine pirates. And then, as if to bring about the climax of this hot battle, the attacking fleet had brought near to the battery of the enemy the special ship, which had been specially charged with explosives. And, as she blew up, there was another wealth of damage done to the cause of the defenders. And so by midnight, the enemy's batteries had been silenced, and in the morning, the day was compelled to surrender. The net result of Lord Exmouth's fine attack was as follows. 1,200 Christians were released from their terrible slavery. All the demands were complied with. The British consul had been indemnified for his losses, and the day and the presence of all his officers made an apology for the insults offered. Even though, a few years later, the French had further trouble with these Algerians, yet Exmouth's expedition had the effect of giving the death blow to a monster that had worried Europe for about three centuries. The scourge of the tideless Mediterranean had been obliterated. 
the murders and then slavery of so many thousands and thousands of European Christians of past centuries had been avenged, and a universal enemy which neither Charles V nor Andrea Doria nor many another had been able to exterminate was now laid low. The combined squadrons of those two historic maritime nations, Great Britain and Holland, had shown that even a race so long accustomed to the sea as the Algern pirates could not resist for all time. In the history of the world, few nations have ever done so much for the development of ships and sea power as these two northern peoples, and the chance which enabled them to combine forces against a common evil of such antiquity was singularly happy. End of chapter 19. Recording by A. Brian Johnson from Kent, Ohio.